Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. This week, Laura and I continued our conversation about freelancing. Now, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, which was part one, about whether going independent is for you, you'll still get plenty out of this episode, but you might miss some of the background on how Laura and I each have incorporated independent work into our careers. That's not essential, but just wanted to let you know. This time we focused on how to be more effective in your freelance career. From finding clients to managing clients, managing balance in your work and your life, and continuing to grow in your professional development. Now, there are lots of great articles about freelancing in UX, but Laura and I still often get asked what our experience has been, which is why we are doing this. Reading articles can be great, but I think hearing other people's stories can give some perspective or ideas that a bulleted list just doesn't do. So if freelancing is something you're considering doing, or maybe you've been doing it for a while, but you're wondering what other people do or what mistakes other people make, we talk about that too, then listening to our stories might fill in some of the blanks for you. And for lots more online resources, check out the show notes page on our site at uxcake.co. We've got lots of links there for you. Hi, Laura. Hi, Lee. Are you ready to talk about freelancing part two? I am. So in the last episode about freelancing, we talked about some of the pros and cons of freelancing and chatted a bit about personality types. Is there a personality that works better or not? And we got a lot of good feedback from folks who said, can't wait for part two. So this week, we're going to talk about being more effective in a freelance UX career. Some of our lessons learned working as freelance UX design and strategy and research. Yes. There's already a lot of great articles on the nuts and bolts of freelancing, like the money part and taxes and defining your brand and writing contracts. Besides, I don't think that those are necessarily the strengths that we bring to the table. Or <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so I figured we're not going to cover that stuff. We'll talk about finding clients in work, trying to find work consistently, managing clients' expectations. That apparently is something that a lot of freelancers say is a challenge. And we'll also talk about things like finding balance, trying to maintain balance and professional development. Hopefully we'll get that far. I think we can do it. Okay. Finding clients and work. I saw something recently that said 71% of the freelancers that responded to this survey were actually freelancing on the side, kind of like moonlighting. I thought that was really interesting. I think this was like a U.S. survey. So I don't know how that compares if it's different places around the world, but um, or if it's changing, you know, in this Gig economy. Gig economy? Gig economy. <laughs> gig economy? Is that what you said? Gig, gig yes. comp. Gig comp. Okay, we just trademarked that. It's our own little <laughs> gig economy. 
But I think it's a little more, and that's fine for people who want to do that on the side. But once you actually quit your job, that's when things get trickier. It's a whole new world. So tell me about how you went about finding clients and work when you first started freelancing. Since I started really early in my career, I was looking for assistant positions that were freelance, right? So researcher who needed someone to help him code or help her take notes. Those gigs, I believe I found through the UW website at the time. I don't even know if they have something like that now. One of my strategies was also to essentially look for startups who were hiring either developers or designers. And I would just cold call them or cold email them and say, I'm a researcher. If you're looking for a designer or a developer, you might also need somebody to consider the user experience. And so that's how things started rolling in. There was a time when I did go through agencies, so a third-party recruiter. Those were pretty brief. I feel like I only got one solid gig out of recruiters. And from there, it was just lots of networking, making sure people knew that there was a freelance researcher within reach. Mm, networking with just the people that you knew, like LinkedIn or going to events, things like that. It was going to events. Yeah. Meetups, events and just say, hey, what do you like express interest in what others were working on and say, if you need a researcher, here's my number. How about you? So I was already pretty experienced when I quit my job to start freelancing or consulting. And my first, I think that I felt pretty good about it because I had already sort of gotten maybe a few month long project before I quit. And that was through Blink, which is in Seattle, although they're actually also now in Chicago and San Diego. It's a user research and UX design firm that started here in Seattle, which is where you and I met also. Right, right. And so I kind of continued along that vein for quite a while because those were really interesting projects where I was doing both the design and the research. But that gave me a little bit of time, I think, also to build my network. I would go to events. So the things that I can think of that are still around are like SIGCHI. We have our own Puget Sound SIGCHI. If people aren't familiar with the CHI program, I'll link to it in the notes. But those are in cities around the U.S. at least. UXPA, UX Professionals Association, IXDA, they also have a lot of local chapters. And connecting with... Ah, you know, another thing that I did, and I was going to kind of mention this, connecting with recruiters, even though I did connect with agencies, but I didn't work with any of them. I don't think I did any work, actually, through an agency. When you say agency versus recruiter, what do you mean? Well, that's what I mean, like the placement agencies. Got it. But connecting with those recruiters at the placement agencies, I think, is a really good thing to do. Even if you don't want to work through that agency, but it's a great way to practice your freelance interviews and get free mm -hmm. feedback on your portfolio as well. That's a great point. 
I connected with other freelancers. That's a really important thing to remember to do. And now that we have Slack, and I know that there are local Slack channels for UX in a lot of cities. So I think that's a great way to connect with other UXers and other freelancers. One other thing that I wanted to mention about connecting with other freelancers, but there's one in particular, this new site that I just learned about actually from someone on Slack and it's called Covalent. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm saying that wrong. It's spelled C-O-V-A-I-L-N-T. So there's a, a couple vowels missing, <laughs> which is why I can't say it. Covalent. But it's a cool idea, which is that freelancers sign up on this platform and it's connecting other freelancers so you can have kind of this network of people that you trust. And I haven't actually started using it yet, so I can't really describe it, but I will put a link to it in the show notes. I, it's in beta, so it's kind of one of those things that's just starting up. Cool. Another thing that you mentioned was teaching. Yeah, I was just going to jump in and say that before we go into teaching, one thing that I see over and over and over again in my students is that they network with each other. And obviously, there's different programs, right, that you can take. And maybe there are some people looking to go into freelancing that aren't necessarily interested in going back to school. But if you were to take, say, for example, skill building classes, such as the ones offered at SVC or elsewhere, you can network with your own students or with your fellow classmates. And so I've seen countless times I've seen classmates kind of partner up and either work on freelance projects together or they essentially hire one another, right? Usually in those classes, there's a mix of people who are either consulting already or looking to consult. There are those that are just full-time employees and are looking to learn a new skill and maybe look for someone who might help them with a particular project. So I think that's a really great opportunity there for students, right? Networking with other students. From a teaching perspective, right? That's one of my quote unquote marketing techniques is to teach. And as a freelancer, as a consultant, I will network with my own students. Obviously, they see you as an expert or a knowledgeable person in a particular subject. And if they feel that you are someone that can help them with a particular project, then projects emerge from that. Yeah, I was talking with someone who's a trainer for a company called Imparture in the UK, and he was saying that he has definitely gotten work from folks who have taken the class and he's gotten consulting work. Yeah, so that's a great way. Sure. And I mean, this is kind of for later, but if somebody were to be looking for an assistant, for example, your students are a great source. You know how they work, you know what they can do, and you might even be the one, right? The teacher might be the one hiring the student to support them. Yes. As a matter of fact, that has happened for me. I tried to hire someone who had been a student, but she was busy. She had just gotten some other work, which was fantastic. So I reached out to another teacher over at General Assembly and got his recommendations and found someone to work with as a junior designer. And she's going to get some experience and get paid. And I'm really happy to have someone really talented to work with me. 
For sure. And I'm happy that you mentioned, right, other teachers reaching out to other teachers because that, that actually happens quite a bit. I've had teachers reach out to me who, say, for example, might teach design or might teach development or something else. And if they're looking for someone to help them with a particular project and it happens to be research, for example, they'll reach out to me and they'll say, do you, do you know of any students who might be interested in doing this type of work? And a lot of connections form through that. And that kind of touches upon the development, like personal or professional development uh, aspect of freelancing. It's definitely been something that I've leveraged throughout my career. The more I teach, the better I get at communicating, the better I get at explaining certain concepts. And those soft skills are always necessary as a consultant. Yeah, definitely. And so maybe we should just go ahead and dive into professional development because that is what we're talking about at this point. So that's one of the drawbacks, I think, of freelancing that I have seen in others that I've heard others talking about, not only that they get lonely working by themselves, but have a hard time knowing what skills to develop or even just growing in their profession. So personally, I think staying connected in the UX community is really important. Mm -hmm. But what's been your experience? Uh, I guess I've attained personal development in a lot of ways. I mean, I continue to go to school. Every now and then I'll take a class um, just to learn something, just to stay up to date with new techniques, new practices. Very fittingly, I listen to a lot of podcasts nowadays, and that's very helpful. <laughs> and reading, reading helps, right? Whether it's a blog, whether it's a book, are basically pointing to, say, for example, new techniques. Like design thinking blew up a few years back, and learning about that, even though I wasn't practicing it, was really important because eventually I did. I did apply it to my work, whether that was as a consultant or as a full-time employee. And there are UX book clubs, too. I don't know if they're only in like the big cities. I guess Seattle's a big city compared to others. It's not one of the biggest, but we have two UX book clubs in Seattle. So maybe more, but two that I know of uh, that are really popular. So those are good places to not only learn from others what, what others are reading, but to connect with people who also have a quest for professional development. That's right. And I think tied to the learning aspect, right, like going back and, and maybe taking a course or two, attending conferences is not only a great way to network and potentially get more work, but again, it's just an opportunity to learn about what's happening now, what's new and fresh, even though you might not get an extensive understanding of what a particular technique does or how it's applied. If you are just introduced to the fact that it exists, you could go back and do your own research later. Yeah. The other areas that I see people learning from each other, I'm not super active in LinkedIn group discussions, but I see lots of discussions happening. Every once in a while, I'll sort of see something there. Reddit and sub subreddit also are places where I think people are learning from each other. And then, uh, well, Slack. Right. Oh, in fact, I was going to mention here, in case anyone's not familiar, there's a great UX Slack channel called Designer Hangout, and it's global. There's folks from around the world there and lots of great discussions. So that's one that I highly recommend. 
And then there's, of course, local UX Slack channels. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the next topic, managing clients' expectations. Ooh, that's a juicy one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what's funny? As I was sort of thinking about this and thinking about how problematic it can be, as UX professionals, the focus of our work is to consider our users' needs and to plan out their journey and understand the user in the how they experience a product or service. Mm-hmm. And so for us, our clients are our users or our customers. So we need to consider what their experience is going to be with us and really plan that out and not let it be an afterthought. Right. I mean, and this goes with any territory, right? As a UX professional, yes, the user, the customer is our focus, but we have to understand and admit, right, that it's not just about balance between what the business goals are and what the, you know, what the objectives of the business truly are so that we can help map, right, that customer experience to what the final objective is. When you throw a client into the mix, right, you're not only considering their needs as your customer, you're also considering their customer's needs and their objectives all around, right? Their objectives in their relationship with you, their objectives with the relationship they're trying to improve or change or establish with their customer. There's so many levels, right? So many layers. So I guess the point is that it makes it even more challenging as a freelancer. That's right. You and I probably have a very similar approach to kind of how we our onboarding process with a client, kind of the upfront before we even sign a contract. Some would call that maybe a statement of work, an SOW. So tell me about your process. Well, I always start with either a phone call or an in-person interview with the person interested in seeking my skills, just so that I could understand the problem so that I could understand the product or the service that we're working on. Usually up front, I mean, I am asking a ton of questions, right? It's not just like, oh, what do you need me to do? And more like, let me see if this is a good fit. And it's weird to say that as a freelancer contractor, because going back to our last conversation about that feast or famine, right? A lot of times, I mean, I, I still have to be very mindful around choosing projects or agreeing to work on projects that are the right fit. There's many times where, for example, what I'm hearing is that they need the skills of a designer or a content manager or something, content strategist, right? And that may not necessarily be like my strength. So it's really important to understand what's really at hand up front before I can even begin to think about what type of research I can do, which methodologies are the right ones, how long is it going to take, and essentially what have a ballpark idea of what the budget is. I'm very used to working within budget and timeline constraints, and so up front I need to know that so that I can even begin to write an SOW and, and plan out the work. Yeah, you're right about that is finding out all that information beforehand, which I think that you need to do to write an SOW. I mean, it's really helpful if a client or potential client already has kind of a RFP, Mm -hmm. like a request for a proposal 
already written up. So it's kind of spelled out what the scope is, what the outcome they're looking for is. It's great if you can start with that, but I don't think it's all that common in my experience. Me neither. And I was going to say, maybe it's because I'm a researcher and that's what I get hired for, but I don't think I've ever seen an RFP. <laughs> I, think, I think for me, it's like, hey, are you available this week? And I'm like, mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me more? And it depends on who it's coming from. Sometimes when you already have an established relationship with an agency, for example, or with a particular client, it's much quicker to get things going, right? Because they know what you can do. You know that they know what you do. And so you have to do less of that upfront work. And it's more about like, okay, what's our timeline? What's our budget? Sometimes budget doesn't even matter because they might already have a, a sense of what they want and you just have to figure out how to do it. Most of the time, though, they are looking to you for expertise and they want to know what, what it should be the plan and therefore what should be the budget. Exactly. They often don't know what they're asking for. That's right. And that's why it's really important to ask up front, what is the problem? What is it that you're trying to learn? What are you going to do with this information? Right. Although before you even get that far... Like before the contract, I mentioned a statement of work. And so I, I think um, there are some great templates out there on the Internet, but it doesn't have to be complex, right? It's just the purpose of it is to get on the same page about what they need and what you will deliver before there's even a contract to sign. So understanding, knowing, agreeing on what the scope is, the expected deliverables, and how many reviews you would expect, you know, the timeline, all of that should be discussed and written up before you sign the contract. Because at that point, then it's a little late to back out. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, every project is different. Design projects are very different than research projects. I don't go into the details of like when we're how many reviews they get because I'm not producing design work. But I do go into this is my hourly rate. These are my estimated hours based on what we talked about. And here are key dates when we could review the research plan or when we could review the screener or when we could have a final presentation. But those are all pretty loose. It's a loose timeline because you never know what's going to happen. They might push it a week or shave a few days off throughout. Yeah. Another thing that is important to put into a statement of work is it's almost like a, a pitch is writing for them what value you're bringing to the table. If they hire you, what kind of outcome can they expect? So not just what the deliverables will be, but the value that you are bringing if they hire you. That's an important piece. For sure. And that's something also that is established at that initial conversation, again, over phone or in person. I mean, you want to tell them what you bring to the table. That's what hopefully allows them to make the decision to hire you for the job. And they're not just looking for just anybody. They're looking for the right person. Yeah. I think that sort of covers managing their expectations before you start the project. But then once you actually start the project, that's like a whole nother set of expectations to continue managing. Mm -hmm. I 
really like to start with something that I call the Project UX Brief, which aligns all the stakeholders on business objectives, project objectives, the success measurement, scope, constraints, and it has to be a conversation that all the stakeholders are in on so that it might be the kickoff meeting or it might be the second meeting after you've actually engaged where you have heard them tell you what all these different things are, maybe even after you've had multiple stakeholder interviews and you can project this UX brief to them all in the same room and have alignment on, yes, these are our objectives. These are our success measurements, et cetera. Right. Yeah, that's an important process for sure. When we first started, okay, when I, when I first mentioned managing clients' expectations, you were like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, tell me about I, that. <laughs> well, it's funny when you were talking about how the upfront expectations is like one piece and then there's managing the expectations throughout the project, right? Beyond the brief, because I feel like that's like phase two of managing expectations, right? It's funny that to some extent that management of expectations comes with so much education. There's a lot of times, you know, we might be working with a client who has not worked with a UX individual, a UX professional. A lot of times they, you know, because they may not have someone on their team that understands the work that we do, they themselves may not understand like what comes out of a process, a UX process, like what they gain from it or what it's informing or how it works. So it's almost like the consultant has to take this position to show them what happens at every step of the way while obviously establishing confidence there and telling them this is going well or even though this happened, we could always do that. For example, if the recruit falls through or we can't find the right people or something changes in the technology and we have to shift gears. But yeah, I think that there's this dance, right, that we do with the client throughout the project where we're like really showing them what's happening without inviting too much churn, if I may use that word, uh, because in the at the end, they're they hiring experts to do the work and they trust that we can do the work. But a lot of times, I mean, every client is different. And so some of them want a ton of visibility into every single bit of the process, while others really just want to check out and then check back in when a final report is ready or a final design is ready. And so we have to kind of gauge where we are, where that client needs to be met so that we can properly manage those expectations if they need, you know, or want a lot of visibility or if they don't. I have to admit, I haven't always done this and it always works better if I do have that conversation maybe in that first interview where you find out how the client likes to work right. or collaborate. And you can say, here's my usual process. How does this fit with your needs or with what your expectations are? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't always done that. And it hasn't always been a problem. But then I feel like maybe then I get a little lazy and or I just forget to bring that up the next time. And that's when it kind of bites me in the Ass. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had a, a project that just went really sideways with the client? Multiple. 
(laughs) (laughs) How did you get it back on track? We reset, you know, at the end of the day, we always reset. And so if, for example, we're heading in the wrong direction or the expectations are not clear or we realize that maybe they were expecting something that we weren't working on, we, of course, again, we always make them feel good about the work that has been done and then have an opportunity at that point, make it a point to say, okay, well, from this point forward, what can we do? Or let's take a step back and maybe edit whatever it is that we've already done. And it's really about like hearing them, right? Listening to what they have to say. So revisiting the objectives, revisiting the conversation that maybe we had at first, going back and saying, okay, well, Maybe we should edit this a little bit or let's make sure that this is still part of the plan. Because a lot of times they go sideways because um, something changes internally. And this goes back to it being necessary for us contractors to be aware or try to stay as alert as possible with what's happening internally. Because when something shifts internally, we may not always understand or know that that happened. And sometimes communication breaks and somebody doesn't communicate to you that that one thing shifted. And so without us being part of their core team, uh, we rely on them telling us what's still moving forward as intended or what has changed. And sometimes we have to like probe on that and make sure that that we're still on the right track. So even trying to prevent the project from going sideways, right? And like maybe having regular check-ins to ask, okay, we're still, these are still our objectives, right? I make it a point to constantly refer back to those no matter what I'm delivering, right? So if it's a screener, in the screener, we have the objectives and then they tie to why we're recruiting who we're recruiting. In the test plan, again, the objectives that show, these are the questions that answer those objectives. In the final stages, again, those objectives continue to come up. And those are just constant opportunities to check in and say, this is still the plan, right? Yeah, those weekly check-ins are really important and clients don't always want them, which is why it's important to find out what they're expecting ahead of time. But those weekly check-ins are important and you have to build those into your estimate. One other thing, maybe the last thing about communicating with clients is using the project that you have as a chance to upsell more work that you could do for either more research or a version two, pointing out more ways that you could benefit your clients. So maybe in the final deliverable, you have a next steps. And that includes a number of things that you could work on with the client next. Yeah, that happens often. Even we don't even have to wait till the end to talk about what those next steps are. I mean, it's necessary to do it at the end, of course, because that's when they might be ready for those next steps. But even throughout the project, we might say, well, we're doing this like this now because this is what we're after. But in the future, you know, there's always an opportunity to do it like that or to add X to this. And so throughout the project, I think that conversation could be ongoing. All right. Well, let's talk about finding balance. (laughs) That's a challenging one because as soon as you you feel like you've found balance, then something happens and you're out of balance again. So you kind of have to do this like over and over. I don't think it's, it's a thing that you do one time. 
But I think that there are some approaches that you can kind of incorporate into your work or your life that um, can help you maintain that balance when you do get out of balance. Can you give me an example of being out of balance? Well, being out of balance would be having too much work or not having enough work. Both are, are difficult. When you've been freelancing for a while, you know that there are there will be down times. And so you, you need to make sure that you are, first of all, that you've charged enough to cover your downtime. That's why it costs more, right? to hire a contractor. So that's really important. And then like for when you have too much work, this is where it's so important to stay connected with other freelancers on a regular basis because that's going to help you with your overflow. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like either of those things are going to keep you from freaking out when you don't have work for a month or (laughs) freaking out when you've got you just took on three projects. <laughs> in, yeah, inadvertently. Like, oops. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it happens. And another, like, maybe more specific example of being out of balance is maybe committing to a project that had a very unrealistic timeline or unrealistic budgets. That it's it's not so much a, I have too much work or too many projects versus no projects. It's also like time management is suffering. And I found myself working overnight. I found myself working all weekend. And those are not fun uh, moments because your entire life is thrown off balance, right? What happens to family life? What happens to personal downtime? You're spending yourself like dry, I feel like that's something that just about anybody who does freelance is going to do at some point. Right. And hopefully you learn from it. Yeah. And sometimes we have to do it, (laughs) right? Like sometimes it's that's the only way to get the gig or that's the only way that the project will proceed if we have that aggressive timeline. And if we're not able to convince the client that that's not the way to go, then we either walk away or we swallow it. Well, I think, though, that sometimes having someone that you can hire to help out in those instances can really help. Maybe not always. I mean, yeah, it all depends. It depends on what on what your what the task at hand is. Right. There have been times where I've found myself needing support. But then when I think about the very few days that I have to get something done and the fact that then I have to onboard someone else and then go through like a contract process with them too because it's not just like hey come work with me I'll pay you 20 bucks an hour it's beyond that and so just thinking about adding a few more hours to my schedule to have someone help me only adds to the problem yeah that's why planning is so important right like that upfront planning and and also clear communication, right? setting those expectations. Right. And I mean, again, every project is different. I'm, I'm referring to projects that are my, like majorly short, right? That you have, instead of a month, you had two weeks. And, and I admit I've taken plenty of those for the sake of not saying no to a client because I mean, maybe this was more 
pertinent to last week's conversation. But a lot of times I find myself thinking like, I want you to stick with me. This is what ensures, right, that I will have more work in the future. And so turning someone down might actually be detrimental. That's where I feel like maybe sometimes I've said yes to something where maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe the timeline was just way too aggressive, but I wanted to keep that good relationship going. Yeah, I think all of us, whether we're freelance or not, we need to uh, learn those ways to say no or pushing back yeah. on uh, unrealistic expectations, but in a way where you maintain a good relationship and still get the work. Yeah. I mean, there's many times where I've said, I would love to help you, but if I take this on, I would actually be doing you a disservice because I wouldn't be focused or because that's I'm not going to give you my best self. And usually that works. Obviously, it has to come off in a very genuine way, but helping the client understand you're not saying no just because you don't want the work. You're saying no because you're assessing that this would not be a fruitful engagement for either party. Yeah. And when that's done in the right way, I think you maintain valuable relationships and credibility too. Yeah, absolutely. I think one last bit of advice I would say for finding balance for someone who hasn't done freelance yet, if they haven't signed the dotted line, don't turn away another project. Yeah. <laughs> don't turn away a project for one that's up in the air. Yeah. Because if they have not yet signed the dotted line. They might be saying, oh, yes, yes, we're definitely doing this. Yes, we're definitely doing this. But until they've actually paid you that first amount of money and signed the contract, you can just screw yourself if you do that. So don't. Don't do it. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I've heard of, and this maybe happens more with design work, maybe because it's a little longer, but I've heard of situations where a designer might be pulled into a project, right, as a contractor, and they're expecting to be working on that project for two to three months. And a month and a half later, they're like, you know what? Sorry, this fell through. We don't need you anymore. How do you deal with that? Yeah, that happens all the time. It happens, it's not so much in my case because I take projects on differently. I don't, that is what happens often for a contractor who will go on site and work for, let's say you have a three-month contract, like you said. And unfortunately, I have been on the other end as a hiring manager when I had to say, <laughs> actually, this project just got canned or whatever. And so typically that's with a placement agency, but I have also worked with independent contractors in that way. And it's unfortunate, but there's nothing that can be done about it. Contracts don't keep that from happening. And so it's not a guarantee like I expect X number of dollars from this. Right. Unless you've written the contract that way, which... I might be a possibility for some projects if you're taking on the project. But then I would imagine that's why it's important if you're not through a placement agency, but if you are independent sole proprietor taking something on, uh, it's important to ask for money up front yeah. to cover. Let's say it, it falls through halfway for whatever reason. You need to make sure that you're going to get paid for the, the time you put into it. Yeah. Which I think on that note, there are times where I find myself 
knowing, right, or realizing that I, there's so much time that goes into the upfront work before you actually start the the actual project, before they sign off on your SOW or your or your brief. And that's something that needs to be accounted for, right? So when considering your hourly rate, I mean, it's important to remember that there's as a freelancer, as contractors, there's so much busy work or, or just like a housekeeping work that we have to do that at first I didn't realize, I didn't recognize that that was going to be such a big deal. And, and it actually is like even billing your clients takes some hours. Uh, and it's important to recognize that that's work that isn't necessarily seen by your client, but that it, it goes into the process. Yeah. And it's easy to forget about like you said, I guess I sort of see it as any job that you have takes a certain amount of work. You know, if you work someplace full time, you have to spend time getting there and getting home. And that's not counted as part of your work. And there's often there's annual or, or biannual reviews that you have to write for yourself and other teammates. And that's not typically considered part of your whatever, 40-hour work week. So, you know, it's true that there is other work other than there's there's lots of time that you have to put into it. But like you said, it's easy to forget. So it's important to just kind of remember to add that into either your hourly rate or your estimates. Yeah. Anything else we haven't covered? Because we've just spent an hour talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure. I feel like, what were our other big topics? That's it. I think we, we did it. All right. Well, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we did not cover, but I would love to know if uh, people listening to this have other questions because people can always contact us through our website at uxcake.co. There's contact, there's contact us links all over the place. We also have a Facebook page. So that's another way to ask a question. And it might be a question that other people have as well. So I would encourage our listeners to ask questions because we answer people's questions about this kind of stuff all the time, which is why we're having this one podcast. So hopefully answered a whole bunch of people's questions. Great. I hope so. All right. Well, thanks, Laura. It's been fun talking with Likewise, you. Likewise, Lee, always. Okay, well, that wraps up our second freelance episode. Next time on UX Cake, we'll be getting back to interviews, and we have some really great ones lined up for you. In the meantime, if you have any questions for us about freelancing or anything else, send them to us on our website, uxcake.co, or Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please take just a moment to rate our podcast in your podcast app. It really does help us. It helps others find the podcast and it makes our day. Thanks for joining us on UX Cake and I look forward to serving you another slice next time.